Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Max Locum chats with edgeofmyseat.com founder, Rachel Andrew, about why she's excited about CSS grid layout and the role responsive design is playing in emerging web technologies. In our second segment, Mac chats with open web evangelist Kyle Simpson, who defends JavaScript coercion and contemplates the past, present, and future of the web, explaining that our biggest hurdle right now is being drunk on features without regard to access. First, here's Rachel Andrew. Enjoy the show. You have a session that introduces CSS grid layout. What is that and why is it important? So CSS Grid Layout is a new spec, an emerging spec. It originally came from Microsoft, and in fact, there's an early implementation of it in IE 10 and 11. It's kind of moved on now, and um, it's really a specification for laying out web pages and web applications. And it's something that we haven't really had up to now. Uh, The specs, the the sort of things we're using for layout, things like float um, and so on, really are quite, quite a lot of hacks to get them to work. And so developers have been working around this stuff for years. Uh, and so Grid, I'm quite excited about because it's sort of for the first time, it feels like a real modern way of doing layout on the web. So it takes something that was a bit hacky for a mm. while and makes it somewhat yeah. efficient? Well, that's it because layout just hasn't really moved on. And the reason it hasn't moved on is because it's actually very, very difficult to start using a new layout method because your layout doesn't work if the browser doesn't support it. So uh, that's kind of why I think this has been held back and we can do so much other cool stuff in CSS now. You know, we can do gradients and animation and all sorts of things and yet we're still hacking around layout, this right. sort of basic structure of the web, you know. So this alleviates some of that. Yeah. That's great. Uh, responsive design, it, do you feel like it's a destination? I mean, is it the culmination of everything we've been working toward or is it a step toward something that will ultimately become the default? This is one of those kind of crystal ball questions, isn't it? You know, <laughs> we're going to hold yeah. you to it, too, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know because things are going to change again. You know, we're starting to look at you know these smartwatches and things like the Apple Watch. I mean, you know, how, how do these layouts then work on these tiny, tiny yeah. devices? And I think it's been a real step forward in terms of people stopping thinking about a web page as being a fixed thing. I think one of the biggest things that responsive design's done is it's stopped people from saying, well, here, I've got my Photoshop document. Make me a website that looks like this, exactly like this, and it yeah. will display like this in all browsers. And with responsive design, we get away from that because, well, it just doesn't, and it can't, and it's going to be different on all these devices. And so I think it's been a huge step forward for the web and how we see web pages and how we understand how these things work. But what happens next? You know, who knows? I mean, who knows what devices we'll have? I mean, you know, five years ago, we were just getting to grips with phones and in fact, people are going to use the web on their phones. You know, in five years' time, what on earth are we going to be right. looking at, you know? Right. So it, it's very difficult to say. And I think it's what makes it exciting. I've been doing this since 1996 and I still love what I do and love finding out about these things. Now, your session description says that you think that all developers should take an interest in emerging specifications. Why Why is that worth studying? Because if you don't start looking at these things at the point at which they're being developed and they're starting to be implemented in browsers, if you don't start looking at them then, you can't really wait until it's there and it's implemented and it's a spec that's gone mm. through the process and then say, oh, this doesn't do what I need. And it's so easy these days. I mean, with you know, with grid layout, it's in it's in Chrome. It's been it's behind a flag, and you can but you can turn it on. You can start playing with it as a developer. 
you don't have to sort of imagine how it's going to work. You can play with it and you can feed back. And so that's why I think, you know, it's important for us to get our hands on stuff, play with it and get back to the people who are creating the spec and the people who are implementing it and saying, this doesn't work for what I need at a point at which you can feed back. Is it because the specs have that feedback mechanism so that you can mm. discover interactions, you can discover yeah. new ways of using it? Yeah, and, you know, and then you can, you, know, you can post to the mailing list and say, well, I've been trying to build something. I mean, I've, you know, I've been doing that as I've put together some examples and saying, well, this is where I could do with this property. You know, and, and as a developer, that's, that's sort of useful to the spec writers because a lot of them, you know, they're not working developers, they're spec writers. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important. I'd love to see more people who are much more design focused looking at these things and giving feedback because ultimately we're going to use them to implement. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's good for people to get to grips with this stuff. Kind of related to that. I'm sort of going off the path mm. here a little bit, but it, with a spec, is spec actually the wrong word for it? I mean, does that, does that imply that it's going to come down from on high and then you're going to use it? I think people feel that that's the case and it isn't really. I mean, it can be sometimes, but I think most of the time these specs go through a process which is open, mm -hmm. you know, and we do as developers get a chance to feedback just as browser vendors get a chance to feedback. I mean, the specs, they're for two groups, aren't they? You know, there's, the, there's people like me who are just building websites and then there's people who are the browser vendors and who are actually implementing the spec in the browser so it will render the stuff that I build. And the specs are there really that those two groups can be working with them. Um, and it's, it's a real shame if developers don't sort of have their two cents worth because you can. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing a bit more of that. I mean, things like the responsive images stuff and things, you know, where actual developers got together and said, we need this and started working on it. The first edition of your book, the CSS Anthology, came out in 2004. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, what has surprised you about CSS's development over the last 10 plus years now? And I think it comes back to this thing with layout, you know, the fact that we're still really, the layout methods we're using haven't moved on much since I wrote that book which is kind of terrifying. I mean, when I, when I wrote the book, I was having to argue for not using tables for layout, as we said, and the first, uh, the first edition was full of, you know, this is why you don't use tables. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, as I rewrote it, you know, that kind of was taking a back seat. I mean, that first edition had uh, things for coping with Netscape 4 in it still, because it was still around, you know, there were right. still, there were still, yeah, yeah, there were yeah. still pockets where, particularly sort of, I think, academic sites and things, you know, where, mm -hmm. where it was still being used. So now, you know, I think a lot of people aren't worrying about IE6 and, and IE7 these days. So, but the fact that this layout thing is, we're still really dealing with layout that kind of is sort of circa 2005, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think that's why, you know, I've, I've been so enthusiastic about the grid layout because I see that, that, you know, in conjunction with Flexbox has been really the way forward. Kind of related to all this, what, what is the biggest web or coding issue that you're running into now? I think the sort of big issue that we're seeing is the diversity of experience and sort of understanding of the web. And I see this in my sort of day job because I'm a CMS vendor. We have a content management system product. So we support our users who are building websites for clients. And in our forum, I really see this huge difference between people who can barely write HTML. Yeah, building sites for clients and have very little understanding and engagement with all of this stuff, the stuff that we really care about and we think is really important. They just want to build websites and mm. they don't care how they do it really. Mm. They're not worried about standards or specifications or whether something's modern or not. They're just building websites. And then, you know, we have people who can't start a project without 
framework and uh, you know task runners and all this sort of stuff so there's a huge diversity now in people who are building for the web I think more so than ever and I kind of worry that we're sort of cutting off those easy entries into becoming a really good web developer uh, because you kind of need so much stuff now or it seems like you know you read any tutorial and it's sort of like oh you need grunt and you need all these mm -hmm. different things you can't just write CSS and I got into the web just because I wanted to build websites and I viewed source and I started building websites and I want to make sure because you still can do that and I'd like to make sure there's still those easy routes in so that people can start playing with things and don't feel they need to have you know a huge stack of stuff before they can actually write a line of HTML because that's not true um, so I, you know I think there's a bunch of sort of issues around that about how do we get people into the industry how do we get people to do it well um, and how do you make sure that the education goes right across from people who really, really just care about delivering sites to their clients and aren't that worried or engaged about with new things? And then people who are really up there and really want to have the latest cutting edge stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of balancing all that. How about five years ago? What was the big thing that you were dealing with at that point? And hopefully, how did it get addressed? Um, I, mean, I think really it was the, that battle with what do we do about these phones? Because um, I think it's about five years next month, I mm -hmm. think, is, is uh, when you know, Ethan's article went out on the list apart. So, you know, back then, we really didn't, I don't think we knew what to do about the phones, you know, <laughs> in that situation. We're building these separate mobile sites. Right. And it almost felt that we were going back to that point where, you know, in the sort of browser wars days, when we were building two sites, one for Netscape, one for IE. And I can remember thinking we're going to be doing this with phones. We're going to be detecting is this an iphone or is this a feature phone and we're going to be building all these sites and i think the responsive design thing really kind of solved that certainly for now in that yes you can build one site and because i think there really was a danger that we were going to start building multiple representations of all of our websites and people were starting to do that for phones so Glad i think didn't work out I, yeah i think we <coughs> sidestepped that a bit yeah. you know with, yeah. with responsive design you know there are issues of performance and things like that and um things that we're kind of still trying to work out as a community. But I think it's probably the best thing we have to tackle the issue at the moment. Last question for you. What people or projects are you following these days? Um, people, um, Sarah Sweden, who's a, um, a developer in the Lebanon, she's doing some fantastic front-end stuff. Uh, her articles are just wonderful, I think. She's uh, a really great sort of new face on, on the scene, as it were. Um, and uh, there's quite a few times I'm talking about things and, you know, on stage. I say, you know, I'd have built an example, but Sarah's just sort of a great article here. So, you know, <laughs> go look at this. This, this is better than, than mm -hmm. anything I would do. She's doing some wonderful stuff and she's speaking at quite a few conferences and things. Um, it, you know, it's, it's really great to see sort of, you know, younger people coming through and new people with ideas. So she's really great. And then the other stuff I'm very interested in is performance generally. Um, I've always been very keen to see the web being available to everyone. That's been something that right through my career I've cared about. And we're seeing, you know, people in certain areas of the world where sort of feature phones are really the, the main way people are accessing the web. And how do we make sure that we get all excited about all this new stuff and we get excited about our shiny new devices that we have and the fact that we've you know, got higher bandwidth a lot of the time and things. But well, how do we make sure that the stuff we're building is also useful around the world and for everybody and not just for people who've got the money to spend on the latest iPhone? So that's the, I'm very interested in performance generally. Uh, it's something we're doing a lot of with our own product. 
and uh, yeah, that's the sort of projects I'm looking at following. Great. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thank you. You can find Rachel through her Twitter handle, at Rachel Andrew. Now, here's Kyle Simpson on why you should learn JavaScript coercion and why we need to look at the web in layers and focus on access rather than features. You have a tutorial on JavaScript coercion. Why does that have such a bad reputation? It has a terrible reputation because I think, unfortunately, our industry has kind of been trained and it's not really entirely our fault, but we've been trained through the various ways that books have been presented, lots of conference talks, blogs, things like that. We've been taught that what our industry values the most is rapid development, quickly moving from feature to feature, and that's how we you know, advance in our jobs and things, but there isn't a lot of emphasis on truly deeply learning things. So if something's not easily accessible right at hand, we sort of skip over it or look for a framework or some tool to cover that thing up. Coercion is one of those areas where it pays off if you learn it, but a lot of people haven't ever needed to. And, and I like to tell people that basically anything that you don't learn is indistinguishable from magic, that old Arthur C. Clarke quote. I mean, it, if you don't learn it, it is really difficult to understand. And so I'm trying to inspire people to learn that part of JavaScript just like they learn any other part of the language. Where does the mischaracterization come from? Is it, is it tied to some larger perspectives on JavaScript? I, I definitely think so. There, there are an awful lot of people that write JavaScript that haven't either, either haven't given a, a lot of thought to the design philosophies behind the language, or they've simply followed the cult myth that JavaScript was poorly designed. Mm -hmm. And they, it's almost like they're bearing this burden, oh, every day I have to write this awfully designed language. Yeah. And I think for those of us that spend a lot of time with the language really learning it, we see a different aspect to the language. We see an, a language that has a lot of internal consistency, but it's not immediately observable. And I think that mischaracterization comes, again, from if you glance at the language, if you see something where a piece of code didn't work exactly the way you expected it to work, you think, well, there must have been something wrong in the design, almost as if a language is supposed to know what you're thinking before you write it. I prefer to focus more on the craft, understanding exactly how to use those tools, using a hammer for a hammer's job, a screwdriver for a screwdriver's job, to be metaphorical. I think that's a much better and more effective way of learning the language, but it does require more of people than I think a lot of people are maybe necessarily used to. What initially drove, uh, drew you to JavaScript? I actually, you know, was kind of a full stack developer back in the early 2000s. So I did a lot in the LAMP stack with PHP. And of course, in that sort of development, they sort of require you to know at least some degree of how to how to present an interface with JavaScript. And so I kind of fell into getting more into JavaScript because as I would write code in the back end with something like PHP, and then I'd duplicate that code in JavaScript in the front end, I actually found, contrary to a lot of people's uh, experiences, I found that JavaScript was more natural mm -hmm. to the way I wanted to express myself in code, and I struggled more with the back end than the front. So I gravitated over those years towards more and more of the front end, eventually sort of exclusively saying, when I take a job, I want it to be specifically JavaScript. And maybe about three or four years ago, when I went independent, that's when I decided instead of just writing code for a living, I want to actually get into teaching code for a living. And that is really where I ramped up because I realized just how much I didn't know about the language and how much I needed to focus on uh, digging into it. 
Where do you see JavaScript going in the near term, maybe the next two to three years? I think the biggest shift that we're seeing in JavaScript is that it is moving simultaneously in two directions. It's moving more to the authorability side. So a lot of the things that we see in ES6, aka ES2015, uh, the newest version of JavaScript that's landing now has an awful lot of features in it that are designed to be uh, allow you to express yourself much more clearly than you've ever had been able to do before. It's not necessarily a new feature that you haven't been able to do, but definitely a new way of expressing it more readably than ever before. Uh, so there's that directional shift, trying to allow people to write better code so that we can all learn from each other, we can all maintain code better. There's another shift to JavaScript, which is being stretched by other uses for the language, other languages, for example, like the closure scripts and the type scripts and the coffee scripts that don't you don't author in JavaScript, but you author in some other language and you compile to JavaScript. JavaScript is being stretched in that way to provide more and more features that can make optimal performance for those transpiled languages. So we see the language kind of being pulled in both directions. And rather than that being a bad thing, I think it's a good thing. I think it's forcing some evolution that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. What is the biggest web or code problem that you're running into right now? Actually, I think the biggest problem that the web has right now is that I think it's primarily being built by a group of people that feel, and I, it's not a specific group, but a group of people in the general sense that take for granted things like unlimited and free bandwidth. When I travel around the world and I'm on metered bandwidth that I'm paying dollars per kilobyte to load pages, and I go to a website that has lots of fancy fonts and lots of great high-res retina sorts of images on them, the experience isn't what is supposed to be such a great experience. We're supposed to be using these tools to provide great experiences, but unfortunately, it's the slow loading times, and I often have to choose not to visit a site because there's no way to visit it without paying 20 or $30 worth of bandwidth to, to, to get to. So I think what, we, what we've done is we've sort of become drunk on the features that we have available to us and taken for granted that everyone has a super fast mobile device or laptop, that everyone has unlimited bandwidth, and that it's free to them. I think we need to begin to take a step back and look at the web more in layers. We need to provide the basic functionality, sort of. My anecdote for this is, is the Gmail experience, the Gmail web client. They have a link at the bottom that says, load just the basic HTML. And I don't know how many people click on that, but that's the sort of thing, if I was on a site, I'd like the option, either through the browser settings or through the application itself, I'd like the option of saying, just the facts, ma'am, just give me the basic stuff so that I can get the meat of this content without necessarily having to choose not to visit your site because of your retina images, for example. I think that's really important to, to making this spread. We see companies like Mozilla moving to provide low-cost um, but still high-powered devices in, in third-world countries and other parts of the world that haven't had the kind of access that we do necessarily like here in the States. And I think that's great, but I think if we don't build the web for those devices, they're still going to be disenfranchised. They're still going to be left out. So we need to rethink how we as crafters build the web to make it more accessible to them. Related to that, what was the issue five years ago that you were confronting and how was that solved if it was? Well, the issue five years ago, I think clearly was we started to see this move towards mobile devices. 2007 was clearly, you know, the iPhone launched and everybody got excited about this idea that now we have mobile computers. It certainly wasn't the first mobile phone, but it was the first widespread adoption of this mindset. The web needs to move into the mobile space. And so we saw people designing 
sites specifically so that it looked great on that exact iPhone. Well, it was a year or two later when another iPhone with a slightly different screen size came out, and then another phone with a slightly different screen size, and then we saw tablets. And so five years ago, we really didn't have a, a grasp on this mindset that the web needs to adapt to the environments that it's in. And now we do understand that the web needs to adapt to the screen sizes. We have this whole movement of responsive design and all of the technologies that feed into making a web application, whether that's JavaScript, CSS, the markup, whatever, plus all the tool systems in the ecosystem on top of that, all of them adjusted to support that sort of mindset. I think the next step, the thing that we haven't really solved is that we're not adapting really to the environment of the device. For example, it's bandwidth, for example, how much it costs somebody to do something. We aren't adapting to those things yet, but at least we've taken a big step towards adapting to the screen size, where it's no longer a prevalent mindset that someone designs something and, and, and wants it to look pixel perfect on every device, we know that that's not even real anymore. So the next step, the next step of that evolution, the next logical step is to start saying features don't have to show up if they're too expensive for someone to use and designing those things in layers. Last question for you. What people or projects are you following these days? I follow an awful lot, given that I'm you know, writing on this book series about JavaScript, I follow an awful lot of the JavaScript community. So I'm following the people that are on the TC39 committee. And that's kind of what, kind of what gets a lot of my focus these days is every little nuance. Every time I see a tweet from someone on the committee that talks about a little nuance of the language, I'm hyper-focused on those sorts of things. But that's just a wave of time at the moment that just happens to be what has got all of my attention. Great. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you. You can find Kyle on Twitter through his handle at Getify. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe to the Radar Podcast through TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm -hmm.